0: Friends, I'd like to ask you a favor. Um, I've been not finding it difficult lately to get started on a Donna talk because my mind has so many things that it could talk about. So you can help me by, if someone has a question, and I'll use that as a starting point. And there's a question back in the corner. Yes, sir. Uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on right speech in terms of how it applies to ourselves. Um, I'm not sure I understand how it applies to ourselves. Like yeah, speaking sure to when oneself. we talk about right speech or when we hear about right speech, it's in reference to you know, how we speak towards others but we always have an internal dialogue going on. And so I've become kind of curious about the concept of how right speech applies to what I or others might say. internally. yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in case everybody didn't hear the question, um, there's this teaching about right speech and to what extent and how might this Instruction apply to one's own way of speaking to oneself internally. Interesting question. So maybe to put it in context, there's um, extensive teachings in this tradition <clears> on <throat> um, what gets called ethics or virtue um, or good conduct, proper conduct, and traditionally it's presented as uh, in the form of precepts. So there's a precept against taking the life of any living creature, Uh, the precept against taking that which is not given or stealing, the precept against false and harmful speech, Uh, the precept against uh, sexual misconduct, and the precept against indulging in the toxicants that dull the mind. And uh, it, when practicing with these precepts, it's worthwhile to keep reflecting on what they're for, what's, how they fit in to what the Buddha's teaching, uh, how they connect with what his goal for us is. So what is the goal of Buddhism? Uh, why, why did the Buddha teach? Uh, in a way, uh, Mira, when she was doing the, uh, the request, she was uh, reminding us of that. Right? So that the, the way the request goes is uh, um, the Brahma god Sahampati came down from his Brahma heaven and in the posture of Anjali, requested of the Buddha to please teach Venerable Sir because there are beings in the world with little dust in their eyes who could benefit, who could understand the teaching. So the the story goes that the Buddha was considering not teaching. He He had just realized full and complete supreme enlightenment and his mind was in a state of blissful release from all the conditions that caused suffering. And he was kind of mulling it over. What if I didn't teach? I mean, if I try to teach, it's very subtle. And it's kind of hard to understand. It takes, it takes effort to understand what I'm teaching. And people really aren't interested. They're interested in, in pleasure and fun and acquisition. And it's, it would just be a hassle. It would just be a cause of frustration. How about if I just keep it to myself? So he was having this, this thought go through his head. And the story goes, the Brahma god knew that this is what he was thinking. And out of compassion for the world, he came down to to beg the Buddha to teach. And so ever since that time, the the teaching is given on invitation. So someone has to invite the teacher to teach, and then we try to teach. So when Mira was doing that request, uh, uh, very frequently it occurs to me that, well, if the Buddha hadn't taught, we wouldn't have access to this teaching. We like, we we're not able to work this out for ourselves. We can't sort of sit down with a piece of paper and go, well, oh, let's see, how do you escape from suffering? Um, well, first you do this, and then you do that, and then you're happy forever after, right? Um, because the world's been trying to cook up us an answer to that question. What is the secret to happiness? How can I bring about the end of all mental dissatisfaction? The end of suffering. Word suffering is kind of heavy, but but it's, but it's a, not inappropriate because um, the reason that we're not happy, or you might say that this on the spectrum of happiness, at one end there's ease, peace, um, stillness, calm, pleasure, and a sense of satisfaction, which we would call happiness. And at the other end, there's, there's misery, there's pain, there's anguish, there's despair, there's depression, there's desire to not exist. And this is all kind of uh, on the end of suffering. And in between, we always find ourselves somewhere like kind of in between these two extremes, but very, very aware of how close we are to this suffering pole, and how much we'd like to be over here at this happiness pole. So everything that human beings do, and you look at all the traffic on the freeway, or all the activities on the commerce sites, or all everything that's going on, on the webpage, somehow or other is connected to this project of trying to get away from the suffering end and get towards the happiness end. We're basically, we're pursuing happiness. We're trying to make ourselves happy. And this is natural, it's normal, and it's nothing wrong with it. Um, and what the Buddha saw was, in a way, an, an inversion of the usual question, which is, what are the causes? The usual question is, what are the causes of happiness? How can I make myself happy? And what the Buddha saw was that happiness is just part of this spectrum of happiness and suffering. And so his question is, what are the causes of suffering? And what can I do about those causes? Because if you could bring the causes of suffering to end, then suffering itself would end, and the result would only be happiness, right? So that's his definition of happiness, is the cessation of suffering. And you see this sometimes in meditation, when the mind stops running around and falling asleep and doing other things that you don't want it to do. It just like stops and just holds still. That's nice, right? It's not exciting, it's not something that you can necessarily convince other people it's worth doing, but in your own direct experience, it is a kind of satisfying, fulfilling peace and ease, a contentment of mind. And this is a a subtle kind of, uh, marketing resistant happiness. Right? Like you can't package this up and put a label on it and, mm-hmm. and sell it as toothpaste, right? They try to, I mean, the, the marketing won't resist any opportunity. But, but in general, when we're, when we're actually experiencing the happiness that the Buddha's talking about, which is the cessation of suffering, it's very gentle. It's, it doesn't need anything. It's not dependent on anything, it's just there. And when you taste it, um, your interest in other forms of happiness, which are usually associated with some kind of sensual gratification, getting what you want, uh, achieving some ambition, uh, you see that those things are kind of coarse and kind of busy and kind of troublesome, and that they're not as they don't have the kind of fulfillment that this peace and ease of not needing anything, not wanting anything to be different than the way it is right now. like the total acceptance of mental okayness with the way things are (coughs) in this very moment. Uh, It's a kind of a timeless, in the middle of everything, uh, acceptance. The mind lets go of its agendas. And the way things are right now is totally good enough. And this is the happiness that the Buddha is pointing to. It's hard for us to stay in that place, though. If we, if we touch into it even for a moment, as soon as we get knocked out of it, we're like, well, that was so great, I wanna go back there, and we, we, we can spend years trying to get back to that that moment that we had where we were actually happy for just a few minutes. Hello, welcome. So, this is the context, right, from when the Buddhist teaching He's trying to, uh, he, he's teaching with the, he teaches with the understanding that it's possible for human beings to do this, to bring their minds to abandon the causes of suffering, and when those causes of suffering are abandoned, what's left is happiness. So this is why we're doing it. This is why, we, why he teaches. This is why we're practicing. This is what we're headed for. So what does that have to do with right speech? This is kind of coming back to your question, especially right speech internally. So the Buddha's method for getting there is, is uh, relevant to this question. So uh, up until now, I've kind of been talking about aspects of the four noble truths. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The truth that life as we ordinarily experience it is characterized by various forms of unsatisfactoriness. Not 100%, not all the time, but for the most part, Things aren't quite the way we want them. And so we're constantly making adjustments or pursuing various agendas to try to get what we want and try to get away from what we don't want. So if we feel pain, we try to get away from the pain. If there's an opportunity for pleasure, we try to get the pleasure. So we're constantly motivated to do things in order to get happiness, to get what we want. So we have an agenda that we're pursuing. And so um, if if there weren't any suffering, then there wouldn't be anything to do. We'd be, we'd be content in that peace right now. And so there's no need to get a better job or get a different apartment or have better food or uh, you know, get another partner or anything else. Everything is like totally okay right now. If there were no suffering, that would be it. Right? You, could, you could relax and just enjoy. So because we're suffering, we've got something that we have to do. So what the Buddha's pointing out is that this is the characteristic of life. We're all being motivated by this sense of unsatisfactoriness, a sense of unease, that things aren't quite perfect, that we want it to be different. Okay, so this is fact number one, the first noble truth, the truth of, of unsatisfactoriness. The second noble truth is the truth of the cause of this unsatisfactoriness, and that cause is labeled as clinging or grasping, sometimes wanting gets thrown in there. Desiring, craving is another synonym. And all these words are pointing at something that our minds do habitually and sometimes invisibly, like having an agenda and sort of wanting something or having something like, say, an identity. Say that people respect you for your programming skills and so then you think of yourself as a good programmer and so you have this identity and now you're kind of clinging to this identity. If someone starts accusing you of making buggy code, then you might get offended and you might start defending yourself. And so he, like this whole agenda can come up around an identity that you're clinging to about who you are. Um, I'm just using that as an example. But it could be your identity as a parent, your identity as a friend, your identity as a sibling, your identity as a, a worker, as a Canadian, as a anything. Whatever it is that you can imagine could be part of your identity. If you cling to it, and someone accuses you of being not so good at that, there's gonna be suffering because of that clinging. If you didn't have a some vested interest in it, then if someone said something bad about, like, uh, you know, you're a terrible basket weaver. I don't care, I'm not, no, it doesn't matter to me whether I'm terrible or not. If you don't care, then it's not a problem. But if you do care, then you've got an agenda, and that's part of what clinging is all about. So it's not just like clinging to sensual pleasure, although sensual pleasure is a big deal, right? We want we want comfort, we want we want fun, we want beautiful sights, beautiful sounds, beautiful smells. Uh, and so we spend a lot of energy trying to get those things. So we're that's the second noble truth, right? There's this clinging, there's this agenda, there's this wanting, which is the drive uh, it's, you could say the drive to avoid suffering and to get something which is gonna be fun and good and, and delicious, tasty. and uh, Or, or to, to defend identities that we've, we've associated ourselves with. So this is all, has to do with the mind grasping at things. And the Buddha is saying, this is the cause of that suffering that you're having. It's not because you're not getting what you want. It's because of the wanting itself. If it weren't for the wanting, you'd already be happy. Okay. So, What do you do about that? Buddha's finding out that he brings us to the third noble truth, which is this noble truth of the cessation of suffering. When the mind is able to abandon the wanting, even just for a minute, at that moment, everything's okay. And there's no suffering. And then this happiness arises. And again, you see this in practice, you see it in meditation. And just for a minute, the mind kind of relaxes and the breath is just there and everything's okay, even though there might be some noise or something going on that's not perfectly pleasant. Like, this, the mind just relaxes and it, and it doesn't have any clinging or any agenda. It's okay with the way things are and there can be this sense of just peace and ease and comfort and okayness. Independent of getting something that you want. Wanting is gone, so everything's okay. So we, we, can, we can actually experience in direct practice multiple times but little tastes of the cessation of suffering that the Buddha is pointing to. And then he brings us to the fourth noble truth, which is the way that you get there, right? The fourth noble truth is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And that's defined as the Eightfold Noble Path. So right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Okay, so he's given us these eight things that are, if we do rightly, presumably will lead us to the ability to abandon the causes of suffering and then to yield this kind of happiness, this timeless happiness of the Buddha. Uh, so, so how do those individual right actions, those right things that he lists in the Eightfold Noble Path, relate to the causes of suffering? And that's where it brings us to, this is your question, kind of bringing it all back together. Of right speech. How does it work? Maybe one way of looking at it is wrong speech. We start with wrong speech. Usually when we're speaking wrongly in the world, we're uttering words voluntarily that are blood.: Some, yeah, exactly. We're uttering words which are painful, cutting, unpleasant. Possibly untrue, uh, harsh, uh, uh, problematic, or uh, offensive to other people's interests. So things like gossip, idle chatter, um, uh, boasting, lying, um, insulting, reviling—any kind of speech like that—and we can do it with our, with our, you know, with our vocal speech. We can also do it in writing. Uh, so anytime that we're speaking in a way that some, could be harmful to some other but somebody else's interests, um, we're engaging in wrong speech. Uh, and the Buddha includes in this what he calls idle chatter, which is speech that just sort of takes up time and fills up space and it sort of, we sort of assert ourselves in the world by saying, look, I'm here too, I have something to say and no one can stop me from saying it, even though it's not very interesting. <laughs> Right, so uh, 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 talking about uh, celebrities or something, right? Just in order to to be part of the scene and and have something to say. So the Buddha defines right speech as speech which is true, which is timely, which is relevant, which is pleasant to hear, which can be, is acceptable to the hearers. And, which is in some way or another connected with the truth, with, uh, with Dhamma. Right? So anything that's not that is probably suspect, right? It's suspiciously probably likely to be uh, wrong speech. So when we're, when we're engaging in right speech, things that are true, pleasant to hear, et cetera, that they, they're supporting the, the interests and the welfare of others. Um, so if you look at somebody and you see that they're having some kind of struggle and you say, is there anything I can do to help? That's kind of like right speech. If you say, oh, you've, you've, you've done a, a fine job of that and you give, give some, someone some praise. It's true, it's relevant, it's, you know, it's helpful, it's supportive of other people's interests. That's right speech. Um, so uh, it's, it doesn't take very long to get the hang of this, right? Anything that you would feel good about hearing coming at you, probably you saying it to somebody else is gonna be right speech. And a lot of it has to do with the motivation. You can see that every form of wrong speech is an expression of something, uh, in some way or another, your own pain, your own dissatisfiedness with the way things are, your own suffering. And so you're kind of like broadcasting your suffering out into the world and making other people suffer too, right? So what motivates wrong speech are the three roots. Greed, so you might lie in order to get what you want. Hatred, uh, you might insult somebody else in order to make them feel bad because you hate them, or you hate their beliefs, or you hate their views, or you hate something about them, Uh, or delusion. You might just be talking nonsense because you just don't know what the heck's going on, and you don't know to, to keep your mouth shut. So this, these are the motivations that are behind wrong speech. Uh, so if there's if there's no hatred, and instead there's loving kindness; if there's no greed, and instead there's generosity; and if there's no delusion, instead there's there's wisdom and insight and understanding. Then the only speech that can come out of that is gonna be right speech, right? So at first, maybe we don't have as much wisdom and kindness and etc. Good qualities, good mental qualities as we'd like to have. And so by practicing right speech, we're constantly looking in and going, what's what's my motivation here? I'm about to say something in the world um, to somebody. I'm about to type something on Twitter before I hit the send button. Am I... Is this right? Speech? Would the Buddha approve of this? Is, is this coming out of out of wisdom, out of generosity, and out of loving kindness, or not. If it's not, then you've, you've learned something about yourself. Right? And, and you're on the track to abandoning the causes of suffering. Because the causes of suffering are the things that are associated with clinging and grasping at the things that are gonna supposedly make you happy. So the clinging and the grasping itself is driven by the same roots greed, hatred, and delusion. Basically, a fundamentalist misunderstanding of the causes of happiness. So because you haven't quite put it all together in your mind for yourself, and you're simply following the instructions of the Buddha, when you practice right speech, you take it very literally. right? You try to understand what right speech is, and you simply try to speak that way in the world. And when your motivation and the words that you're about to say are different from that, you just don't say it. Right? You just keep it to yourself and let the moment pass. And when you start practicing that way and the moment starts to pass and you don't say unfortunate things, pretty soon you start getting the benefit of that. So every time that you restrain yourself from doing something unwholesome, when you look back on yourself, you reflect on that behavior, that actually kind of non-behavior, self-restraint, how do you feel about it? You feel positive, like, Oh, I, I was about to say something really nasty to that person, and then I remembered I'm practicing right speech, and I didn't say it. And so now I'm not guilty of, I don't have to sort of defend myself, I don't have to feel guilty about having said something nasty. Um, and so you you can see that the benefit, or the, 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 the impact of right speech, or refraining from wrong speech, really, is a positive one. And then... In uh, the same thing, if you practice right speech in a positive way, you, say, you see someone suffering, you say something kind, you say something uplifting, you say something helpful, true, timely, relevant, connected with the Dhamma, that makes the world just a little bit better because you said it. Every time you do that, when you look back on that speech, your sense of it, your felt sense of who you are in that moment is a positive, uplifting one that, that's productive of happiness, productive of contentment. And so then you start to see that the connection between the mind state and what comes out of your mouth um, is relevant not only in this moment of connecting with another person with speech, but also to your future as a conscious being, like how it's going to feel to be you in the future, the guy who said this, right? Versus the guy who said the other thing that you could have said, right? So you, you start seeing the, the, the fork in the road every time you're about to say something and you become increasingly sensitive to not going down the wrong fork. Right? This is actually very much like what the Buddha talked about his practice that he undertook when he was just an ordinary Bodhisattva, before his enlightenment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he says, um, before I was enlightened, uh, what I would do is examine the contents of my mind, and whenever a thought came up which was uh, uh, harmful, Um, I would categorize or harmful or connect with the harm of either another person or myself or both. Or He used, I think, the word afflictive or tending towards affliction. Um, That thought I would try to abandon and I would not actualize that thought. Whenever a thought came up that was tended towards the welfare and benefit of myself, the welfare and benefit of others, or the welfare and benefit of both, that thought I would cultivate and uh, try to uphold and, and continue. So it's just a very kind of binary practice where you see the fork in the road, and you just keep taking the wholesome fork, and you keep abandoning the abandoning the unwholesome fork. And so each one of those precepts, uh, having to do with not taking the life of other living creatures and right speech and so on, is constantly that seeing the alternative and choosing the one that leads towards happiness and abandoning the one that leads towards unhappiness. Uh, so he doesn't use that term exclusively. He uses kusala and akusala. So kusala speech is skillful speech and akusala speech is unskillful speech. And the distinction between skillful and unskillful is not your command of the language or, or you know, how gracefully you create a sentence, but whether or not it's wholesome, whether it's uh, connected with the benefit and welfare of others or not. So, um, abandoning things that are not wholesome is mostly a matter of restraint. And then cultivating what's wholesome is a matter of sort of seeing the opportunities and using them positively, right? So, you know, some cases it's just better to be silent. But in a lot of cases, saying something would be worthwhile and and it kind of would be helpful. You know, so if you see someone who's uh, you know, new in your department and you chat them up in a friendly way, even though it's not necessarily domic, at least you're, you're conveying the, the message of, you know, uh, I'm, I see you, I see you as a fellow human being, and uh, I want you to know that you're, uh, I'm welcoming you in a friendly way. Right. So saying something kind to somebody means being welcoming is, a, is an expression of generosity, which is always a wholesome course of conduct. And then when you, again, the way that you can tell is by looking back at how it affected you, right? So if you say something wholesome and you review that later on that day, you're like, well, I said that kind, friendly thing to that person and they smiled. How do I feel about that? Pretty good, right? And contrast that with what other things that you might say, like I just really ripped on that guy on Twitter, how do I feel about that? I want to delete that, you know? like, I wish I hadn't done it. Right? So you feel bad about stuff that's unwholesome. You can tell how it feels. Right? As you start to see the connection between action and result, <coughs> you're coming to understand kama. Right? So the Buddhist teachings often characterize as the teaching of cause and effect, how one thing leads to another, how one thing causes another. In fact, that's embedded in the Four Noble Truths there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering. When you abandon the cause, the suffering goes away. So cause and effect are so intimately interlinked that you can't have an effect without the underlying cause. So rather than attack the effect, what the Buddha does is he directs our attention towards the cause of the effect that we don't want. We don't want the suffering. He says, attend to the causes of suffering. What causes suffering? Unwholesome mind state. or or greed, hatred, and delusion, or uh, craving for things, wanting things to be different. The the thing that wants in us is our egoic centralized self, our sense of self, the me inside that's so greedy and so hungry and so hateful and so resentful and so jealous and so bitter and so all these other things, all these negative mind states, they are upon the self. Its negative mind states are the result of repetitive mental action and physical action and speech over time. It builds up our personality, it creates who we are. And it's very subject to change. It's very malleable. You know, you can you can overturn a whole history of being an angry bitter person by just choosing to be kind right now in this moment. Right? And then in that moment you're no longer an angry bitter person. So um, You can overturn a whole lifetime of being a greedy, grasping person by being generous in this moment, even with just speech. In that moment, you're not a greedy, grasping person. So you you literally change your identity when you abandon unwholesome courses of conduct and you cultivate wholesome courses of conduct. So as you start to practice this externally, you can't help but see the connection between one's mind state and one's uh, energetically expressing that mind state. And we express our mind states in terms of bodily action. So everything from uh, you know very subtle movements of body language, like, you know, I, I don't like that person, so I'm gonna turn away from them a little bit, you know, or I'm not gonna look them in the eye, or I'm gonna treat them kind of coldly. Or we can, we can treat someone with a lot of love without saying a word, just by looking at them you're having a nice day, just the feeling of heart connection with somebody because you're, you're in the same space with them and you're acknowledging them as a human being, right? So we can our bodily action and our verbal action are really clear, constant networking connections that we have to other people. And when we're not with other people, our main mode of expression is our mind, what we think about, right? So it's possible to sit in your chair, with nothing particular to do, and just think a whole string of hateful thoughts. Right? You can think about something that happened in politics or in the news or in your childhood and just sit there and just hate on people for hours at a go if you want to. You can spend an entire flight from here to London think, you know, mm-hmm. thinking hateful thoughts. How will you feel when you do that? You know, When you get off that airplane, you're going to be miserable. Right? So the thing is, is that thoughts are a lot like speech. You can choose to redirect the the river, right? You can't necessarily shut the river off. Trying to get the mind to stop saying stuff is hard to do. But you can change the way the mind focuses on right? And this just takes effort. And this is where the other parts of the Eightfold Noble Path come in. So the, the last three parts are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And usually we associate those three parts of the Eightfold Noble Path with formal meditation practice, and for sure, it takes those things in order to do meditation. But if you're sitting on the airplane and you've got a couple of hours to kill, and mostly what you're doing is thinking, it's worthwhile becoming aware of the course of thoughts that your mind is engaged in, and ask yourself whether they're wholesome or not. Like. If for some reason, suddenly, you couldn't stop yourself from speaking your thoughts out loud, would other people enjoy hearing what you have to say? (laughs) If you you ask yourself that question, oftentimes the answer will be, well, probably not. (laughs) Um, So, uh, when you notice that the mind is doing that, it's, it's doing it internally, it's not expressing it in the world, it's good that it's not expressing it in the world, and let's keep it that way. But maybe um, this, is a, this is a great opportunity when you notice that the mind is on some unwholesome course of thought to try something, to play around with it, to uh, inject some new uh, energy in there. Right. So... Um, Maybe some a little more concrete example. Say there's a politician that you find particularly low with the song. <laughs> 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 who said something that really got you. How could that person say that? No. That is so irresponsible. That is so evil. That is so. <laughs> and the mind starts thinking this thought, you know, and starts like wishing harm on that other person. And you know, here's something that's really important for you to remind yourself of is that politician, you don't actually know that person. All you have is a is a projected image, a media projected image of that person. You don't know who they are. You have a mental image of who they are that, that's been created uh, cooperatively between your own mind and the minds of others who are projecting an image. Part of it's the politician themselves, and part of it's the media that are interpreting these images. So our really, our image of anybody is kind of a mental fabrication. It's not a real living and breathing human being. It's just a a picture in our mind. Even people that we know, unless we're actually in contact with them right now, all we have is a memory and a representation. And we don't even know ourselves that well. How can we possibly know another person, especially another person in another city who just happens to have a lot of images on television, right? So you have to kind of keep reminding yourself that what you think you know about the stuff that your mind gets all obsessed about is kind of, kind of bogus, right? Whatever your opinion is about that politician, you can find other people in the world who are well-read, well well-educated, who, who have exactly the opposite opinion, right? It doesn't mean that either of you is right, that one of you is right and the other one's wrong. It just means that people have opinions and this is just what minds do. So rather than taking your opinion so seriously, notice the effect that it has on your heart to think hateful thoughts about another person and then try doing something different drop ask your mind to drop that person and then think of a puppy <laughs> or think of a kitten or think of somebody that you like you know think of the Dalai Lama right and when you when you when you direct you redirect your mind you know, like consciously come up with thought that you can direct in that direction. So go, you know, may all puppies have thought. May all puppies have some little kid to play with. Um, may kittens all be able to, you know, sharpen their claws on furniture without anybody yelling. <laughs> 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 you know, so just like, think of something. When you start engaging your mind in this way, let, may, may the Dalai Lama be really happy. May he live a long time. I really love the Dalai Lama, so I really wanted to be around. And you just sort of think this, right? Because, and you're thinking about the Dalai Lama or about kittens and puppies, has just as much like external effect in the world as thinking hateful thoughts about a politician, right? It doesn't really affect the external world. Right? The politician doesn't care whether you hate him or not, right? The kittens don't; their lives won't really change because you're thinking these happy thoughts. But what will change is how it feels in here. What will change is the the condition that your mind will be in after you spend half an hour doing that, right? So this is where right internal speech is really important, right? Uh, The Buddha put it very simply. Uh, He says, in whichever mode a practitioner habitually directs their mind, those topics and concerns to which they habitually attend that will become the inclination of their mind. The mind simply leans in that direction. And so if you habitually think bitter, resentful, angry, unhappy thoughts about anything, then you're inclining your mind towards bitterness, bitterness anger, and unhappiness. If you make an effort to counteract that, just like trying to counteract your tendency to say insulting things in real life, like coming out of your mouth in real speech, you make an effort, you start having some success. You start noticing the benefit. And then it starts to create this kind of virtuous cycle. You want to do that more because it's good. It, it pays off. And so, again, you, you get more and more sensitive to what's actually going on up here in the mind. What's going on in the heart. What's motivating your, your action. And pay attention to what's actually happening. It's easy to go through your whole um, large chunks of your life thinking things and not realizing that you're thinking things, that you're building a whole world in your mind. And right? you, you kind of think and think and think and think, and you never stop to go, geez, I'm, just, I'm sitting here just thinking. You know? but I, and The thing that I'm thinking about isn't all that great, and it's not helping me, it's not making me a happy person. It's not affecting the outside world in a positive or a negative way, it's just me. Right? So, so a, a huge amount of what we have to do in practice you might say that the whole secret to practice is to wake up in any moment to what it is that's actually happening, not so much in the external world, but inside your mind, inside your heart, and go, is this what I want? Is this the direction I want to go? And if it's not, do something about it. Right? Restrain it if it's going in an unwholesome direction. If it's going in a wholesome direction, support it, You know, encourage it, and reinforce it. Make a habit out of it. Explore how to make it bigger, how to expand it, how to how to consolidate your gains. You know, like see the mind as this kind of game field, this playing field in which you can score goals and you can make progress and you can get things to make things better over time. When you have a good mind day, not only will your actions and speech in the world be beneficent and helpful to others, but your trains of thought will mostly be beneficent and helpful to you. And so at the end of the day, when you look back on both what you said and you did and you thought, um, you'll be pretty content with that. You'll have a sense of ease and peace. And this is the ease and the peace and the happiness that the Buddha is pointing to, right? The, the happiness and the, the benefits, the joy, the bliss, the freedom, all these kind of great things that you hear about in Buddhism, they're, they, they're grounded in these like, real-world actions. You know? That's why most of the Eightfold Noble Path is taken up with stuff which is um, like happening in the world, right? Like, right view. is a, the, the view that cause and effect is real, that, that certain actions will lead to certain effects, and this is what is it, taken seriously. Right intention is, is the intention of non-ill-will, the intention of non-greed, the intention of non-hatred. Right? It's, it's actually very simple, but you have to, you can see what your intentions are when you're about to do or say something. And you can drop those intentions and substitute new ones. So, so the other aspects, right speech, right action, right livelihood are simply outward expressions of this inner right view and inner right intention. And then finally, it takes right effort to do this, right? It's not going to happen by itself. It doesn't happen because you read about it or you hear about it. You have to actually take it on. Like, you know, I've only got one life to live. <coughs> um, am I just going to let it go by running mostly on habit and and momentum? Or am I going to get in there and start trying to make it different? And if you do, you, you get the benefit of it. You make you make some effort, you get some benefit. You make a lot of effort, you get a lot of benefit. So right effort means effort that's both directed in line with the Dhamma, so you know directed in a wholesome way, um, and that's both um, kind of persistent, but patient and gentle, and willing to kind of go back over and over and over again. So right effort doesn't have this this like Herculean struggle uh, associated with it. It's more like just like Okay, just going to keep, kind of keep working at it, keep chipping away at it, keep sticking with it, and keep, keep leaning it in the direction of the wholesome, of abandoning the causes of unskillfulness and um, checking how things are working, like sort of paying attention to the results. Um, right mindfulness is actually literally knowing what's happening in any given moment. If you know what's happening right now, what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your, in your heart, and what's what you're about to do, what you're thinking, okay, you're, you're mindful, you're awake. Right? If you don't know, if you're just kind of acting on habit, or you're kind of automatic, an automatic pilot, then you can't really say that you're mindful, right? And it's easy to go through huge chunks of your life kind of unconscious. So the is asking us to wake up in multiple different levels, right? In this moment, uh, towards the difference between good and bad action, but towards the action of karma, towards how how to abandon the causes of, of, of misery and unhappiness and how to cultivate happiness. So um, you have to pay attention. Attention's everything. Okay? And you have to take action based on what it is that you see. You have to, you have to learn from what it is that your results are teaching you. Because it's not just like you, you just like turn the crank, you just keep like speaking right speech, and you keep uh, acting right action. you keep living like life, lifestyle. You just kind of go through these motions, you kind of obey the rules, and some, somehow magically you'll get enlightened. It's not, that's not how it works. What works is paying attention to what your mind is doing and constantly tweaking it, intervening, substituting something better and watching the results, learning from the results. And if you try to do something and it doesn't quite work out the way you want then next time do it a little differently and see if you can get the result that you're looking for. So you have to really kind of totally get engaged with your life and your mind and the, the kinds of things that you tend to do. Look at all the little habits that you have and call them all into the carpet and ask them whether they're really serving you or not. So if you've got bad habits, reform those bad habits. Don't just let them continue. To right? take responsibility for everything that happens in your life because it's all coming from your mind. It's all coming from your mind. The mind is everything. When you do this, you start having successes. Right? It's not going to be 100% on the first day, but you start noticing that you can say something nice. You can stop the course of unwholesome thought by just redirecting your attention at something wholesome. Pick up a book. You don't have to sit there and just stew over something you can shut it off. Um, and so when you when you practice with these things and you see for yourself that, that it actually works, then you start giving yourself the fuel that it takes to keep going and keep keep coming back over and over and over again, which is what right effort's all about. And uh, this will pay off in your meditation. You'll see that meditation becomes easier, more accessible, more successful, um, uh, and... The, the things that you'll see happening in your mind will, will astound you. Like you. You see that your, your mind is capable actually of everything the Buddha talked about, including enlightenment. Your own very mind. This human mind is pretty much the same. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's quite possible to wake up and to live a life that's characterized by happiness and freedom that uh, the Buddha is talking about, to abandon the causes of suffering. And that's what he taught. So when the the Brahma Sahampati came down and asked the Buddha to teach, he said it's because there's beings with little dust in their eyes. Dust in your eyes. You've all heard of the Sandman? When the Sandman comes, we close our eyes, we fall asleep. So the difference between someone with dust in their eyes and someone with little dust in their eyes is the difference between being awake and being asleep. So, to be awake means to have little dust in your eyes, to be willing and able to pay attention. Uh, those who have little dust in their eyes can hear the Buddha's message and can take action based on that understanding. And it's it's not an all or nothing affair, right? It's a, the Buddha called it a gradual training, so it does take time and it does develop over time. Um, you know, think of all the years of practice that you have in bad habits, right? You're really good at it, so it's normal that you'd have a lot of momentum there. So don't, don't, don't sweat it. Um, the good news is, is that you're, you're entirely reformable. Right? You can be completely transformed. Your character can, like, all your good character traits can be enhanced, and all your negative character traits can be dramatically diminished. And, and uh, accordingly, you will experience tremendous benefit and welfare. And so will everybody around you. So it's well worth doing. And consider the alternative, which is just going through life more or less asleep. So, with these words, I offer my (laughs) encouragement.